You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 152, The Siege of Fort Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany. So last week we covered the British Army under General Barry St. Ledger, comprised mostly of Iroquois warriors, along with Loyalist militia, who were all fighting under the command of Sir John Johnson and Chief Joseph Brandt. The army was preparing to besiege Fort Stanwix. They faced a garrison commanded by Colonel Peter Gavinsport and Lieutenant Colonel Marinus Willett, with about 750 Continentals and militia. St. Ledger's force far outnumbered the garrison by almost three to one and there did not seem to be any hope of the retreating Continental Army sending a relief column anytime soon. This, however, is where home court advantage really matters. There were still a great many local Patriot militia in the area. Militia General Nicholas Herkimer mustered his militia at Fort Dayton, in what is today known as Herkimer, New York, about 30 miles from Fort Stanwix. General Herkimer assembled a militia army of a little over 700 men to march to Fort Stanwix and relieve the siege. Along with the militia were several dozen Oneida warriors, by some estimates maybe as many as a hundred. While the Oneida tribe continued to profess neutrality, they were on friendly terms with the local patriots, and they deemed the invasion of their land by St. Ledger's expedition as an act of war on the Oneida tribe. General Herkimer, having assembled his force, though, was reluctant to advance. Even if his relief force reached Fort Stanwix, and combined with the garrison already there and already under siege, their combined force would still be smaller than the nearly 2,000 enemy soldiers, many of whom were fearsome native warriors who fought ferociously and did not take prisoners. Of further concern, he had tried to send instructions to the fort to signal the relief column. The plan was that the garrison would sally out and attack the besieging force at the same time the relief column was attacking. If the garrison did not get his message, Herkimer's relief column might have to face the much larger enemy force on their own. They could very well be marching into a slaughter. During a council of war held at daybreak on August 6th, Herkimer cautioned that it would make sense to halt and await the arrival of more Continentals so that the larger force could overwhelm and defeat the enemy, or at least wait until they heard a signal from the fort that they had received his orders. His officers and men, however, would have none of that. These men were ready for a fight. Waiting around, possibly for weeks, might allow the fort to fall. Even worse, many of these enemy native warriors who were loyal to the crown were already beginning to launch small raids on isolated farmhouses and villages where their wives and children lived. 
the raids would only get worse if the militia did not act now. The militiamen pushed back at Herkimer, implying that he was a coward or a traitor if he did not attack. By some accounts, they brought up the fact that Herkimer's brother was fighting with the enemy, and that perhaps he shared his brother's loyalist tendencies. In the end, Herkimer probably realized that his men were marching forward with or without him, so he led his men forward. Back in the British lines, Joseph Brandt received word from his sister, who was still living among the Patriots, that a group of about 800 had marched to relieve Fort Stanwix. General Ledger kept most of his regulars around the fort, but sent most of his army's Tory militia and the native warriors to attack the relief column. Sir John Johnson was given command of this force, but Joseph Brandt effectively commanded the bulk of the force made up of native warriors. The British identified a spot along the King's Highway from Fort Dayton, about six miles from Fort Stanwix. The highway itself was a rough dirt trail cut through the heavily wooded area. The location they chose was a point where the trail dipped into a ravine and where two streams created a low marshy area. This was near the Oneida village of Oriskany. The plan was to wait until the Patriot Column was entirely in the ravine. Johnson's Royal Yorker militia would remain hidden in the center of the line and would stop the enemy column. Native warriors would be hidden in the woods on both sides of the trail and would fall on the Patriot militia in hand-to-hand combat. Brant would take another small force of natives behind the column to capture the baggage wagons and cut off any retreat. This action would allow the British force to have effectively surrounded the enemy and would gradually wipe them out in battle where they would take no prisoners. By mid-morning, the British ambush was in place and the American column was beginning to enter the ravine. Many of the newly appointed Indian chiefs were relatively young warriors without much experience, at least in larger battles. They did not wait for the proper signal, but instead gave the battle cry and rushed their warriors against the head of the column before all of the Americans had entered the ravine. This prevented the British from surrounding the entire column and cutting off the retreat. For the next hour or so, brutal hand-to-hand fighting took place. The militia on both sides were rough frontiersmen who knew the brutality of Indian-style fighting. At the initial attack, some of the Patriots turned and ran. Almost all of these men were chased down, killed, and scalped by attacking warriors. Those who held their ranks quickly formed into small defensive circles to engage with the enemy. As I said, most of the fighting was hand-to-hand, with both sides armed with tomahawks and hunting knives. Many used their rifles and muskets as clubs to beat the enemy to death. The brutality was not simply between natives and militia. Many militia on both sides knew each other. Both had lived together in Tryon County as neighbors before the war. Many of them even had family in the enemy camp. For many, years of fighting, bullying, and atrocities on both sides had grown into a red-hot hatred of their opponents. The battle brought out years of frustrated anger at the other side. The combat took on a ferocity rarely equaled in this war, and the idea of surrender or taking prisoners was simply not a consideration. Early in the fighting, General Herkimer took a shot in the leg, and to make matters worse, his horse was also shot and fell on his injured leg. Herkimer refused to be carried from the field, 
but instead lay under a tree on a nearby hill and continued to direct his men. As the battle raged, a fierce thunderstorm poured onto the battlefield. This forced both sides to temporarily take shelter and created a lull in the fighting. The Americans took advantage of the lull to regroup on a small hill where they could better defend themselves in a perimeter. They also adapted their tactics. Many of the American militia were armed with rifles and had been shooting independently. The Indians took advantage of this tactic by waiting till a soldier fired and identified his position by the puff of smoke from his rifle. An Indian warrior would then charge the soldier and kill him in hand-to-hand combat before he could reload. During this lull, officers instructed the men to stay in pairs so that only one man could fire at a time. The other would always have a loaded weapon so that if an Indian rushed them, they could shoot down the attacker. At one point, several dozen Loyalist militia arrived as reinforcements. The British leaders instructed them to turn their coats inside out and pose as Patriot militia and march into the enemy lines. This almost worked until one of the Patriot officers recognized a former neighbor who he knew to be a Loyalist and had his men open fire on them. As the Battle of Oriskany, as it was later called, raged, the garrison inside Fort Stanwix had received Herkimer's orders and could hear the gunfire a few miles away. The fort's second-in-command, Colonel Willett, organized a raiding party of his own. About 250 men left the fort to raid the nearby enemy camps. The Americans found the camps nearly abandoned. They chased off the guards, as well as the wives and children of native warriors. The Americans plundered the camps for food, supplies, and anything of value. They stole or destroyed everything they could. The British regulars, who were still around the fort, did engage with the raiding force, and there was some considerable gunfire. The sound of the gunfire near the camp concerned the forces that were engaged at Oriskany, that another battle was taking place back at the fort while their forces were divided. By early afternoon, word of the raids on the camps had reached the soldiers still fighting at Oriskany. The native forces at Oriskany began to fade back into the forest and make their way back to the fort. The Loyalist militia, seeing their allies leave the field, pulled back themselves. This allowed the Patriot forces to withdraw as well. The bloodied remnants of Herkimer's militia army returned to Fort Dayton. In terms of percentages of casualties for the Americans, the Battle of Oriskany was one of the bloodiest of the Revolution. The British had been successful in their ambush, inflicting massive casualties on the Patriot militia. Of the roughly 800 Americans and Indians engaged on the American side, about half were killed. Another hundred were wounded, captured, or missing, and very few of those were captured. Anyone wounded or trying to surrender was typically killed and scalped on the spot. The British casualties were relatively light and mostly among the Indians. The British only listed seven killed and with a few dozen wounded, captured, or missing. It's likely that most of the missing were dead as the British left the field in a hurry and could not look for bodies in the heavily wooded underbrush. The native casualties were not reported, but were likely in the dozens. So, the Battle of Oriskany was a tactical victory for the British. Although they did not entirely wipe out the relief column, they had inflicted massive casualties and forced it to withdraw. 
St. Leger could continue his siege on the beleaguered and isolated Fort Stanwix. The battle, however, did not go over well with the Indian forces that made up the majority of the St. Leger army. The warriors had joined with the understanding that the British regulars and the provincial militia would do most of the fighting, and that the natives would be in more of a support role. At Oriskany, St. Ledger had kept his regulars at Fort Stanwix and allowed the natives to do most of the fighting. Probably of greater significance was the raid on their camps while the natives were fighting. Many of the Indians had lost most of their possessions in that raid. This was a matter of life and death. Warriors who spent the summer season fighting relied on what they captured to provide them and their families with food and other necessities to get through the next winter. The loss of their possessions could very well mean their death from starvation or exposure if they could not replace them before winter. Further, the siege of the fort did not seem to be ready to end any time soon. Joseph Brandt had recommended that they pursue and continue to attack the retreating American relief column. St. Ledger, however, refused to accept the recommendation and ordered the natives back to besieging the fort. The Indians were not happy to sit around and wait for something to happen at the fort. They preferred to be plundering less well-defended enemies elsewhere, where they could collect booty and scalps. As a result, several hundred of the Indian warriors left St. Ledger in search of other opportunities. But despite the departure of some Indians, the majority remained with St. Ledger and continued the siege. The Battle of Oriskany would have a greater long-term impact on the Iroquois more generally. Brant, as a Mohawk chief, was upset that the Oneida, his fellow Iroquois, had fought with the Patriots and against his warriors in battle. Brant sent the Oneida a bloody hatchet, indicating he considered his Mohawk at war with his former allies. The Mohawk would burn an Oneida village in retaliation. With this, the Oneida dropped their neutrality and threw in with the Patriots, attacking Mohawk and Seneca villages in western New York. Eventually, the smaller number of Mohawk and Seneca in New York would have to move north to Canada, where there were larger tribes that could defend against Oneida raids. This civil war, however, marked the end of centuries of Iroquois cooperation and confederation. On August 8th, two days after the Battle of Oriskany, General Philip Schuyler received word that Herkimer's relief column had failed to take the fort and had retreated with heavy casualties. Schuyler held a council of war to discuss the fate of Fort Stanwix. The majority of the Continental leadership present believed that Fort Stanwix would probably go the way of Fort Ticonderoga and would fall to the British. Now, you have to remember, at this time, Schuyler and his Continentals were trying to find some way to stop General Burgoyne, who had a much larger army, from reaching Albany. Schuyler's army was already smaller than Burgoyne's. He could not afford to divide his forces and send thousands of Continentals off to the west to rescue the outpost at Fort Stanwix. Most of his officers agreed with this assessment. Among the dissenters, though, was a newly arrived Major General Benedict Arnold, whom Washington had sent to supplement the leadership in the Northern Army. Arnold had arrived at Fort Edward on July 24th. Schuyler had given him command of one wing of the Northern Army, while retaining the other command for himself. Over the next couple of weeks, Arnold had used his men to chop down large trees 
to cover the road from Fort Anne, forcing the British to spend days clearing the roads and reducing the British advance to about one mile per day as the Continentals awaited more reinforcements. At the Council of War, Arnold argued that if St. Ledger took Fort Stanwix, the British would capture the Mohawk Valley and their Indian allies would ravage the people there. St. Ledger's advancing army would inevitably force the Continentals to divide their defenses to prevent St. Ledger from joining up with Burgoyne's army. Better to do it now when they could rely on the help of the Fort Stanwix garrison to defeat St. Ledger. Schuyler asked for a brigadier to lead the relief force. When none of them volunteered, Arnold offered to personally give up his command of his wing of the army in order to lead the relief force himself. On August 13th, Arnold set out with about 900 Continentals to relieve Fort Stanwix. His first stop was German Flats, a small town a few miles south of Fort Dayton and a little over 30 miles from Fort Stanwix. There, he tried to recruit a larger army by reaching out to the local militia and to the Tuscarora and Odeida tribes. But this was just about a week after the Battle of Oriskany, and these groups were still licking their wounds. Arnold remained in German flats for a few days, attempting to recruit a larger army, but only collected about a hundred militia. Arnold could not wait forever. St. Ledger was slowly digging zigzag trenches ever closer to Fort Stanwix's walls. Within a few days, his guns would be close enough to take down the walls and breach the fort itself. If Arnold was going to save the fort, he would have to act soon. On August 20th, Arnold tried a bit of bluster to get St. Ledger to give up on his siege. He issued a proclamation that, in light of what the British had done at Oriskany, if St. Ledger did not surrender within ten days, his army would attack and give no mercy. The Patriots were holding several Loyalist prisoners at German Flats, who had been sentenced to death for attempting to stir up a Loyalist revolt and join St. Ledger. Among them was a man named Han Joost Schuyler. No relation to General Philip Schuyler. He was described as a half-wit, and his mother and brother begged Arnold to spare his life. Arnold agreed, on the condition that Schuyler would go into the British lines and warn them that the Continentals were coming with thousands of soldiers to wipe out the British attackers. They took Schuyler's jacket and shot it full of holes, and then sent him to Fort Stanwix. To ensure he went through with his mission, Arnold held his brother as a hostage and sent an Oneida scout to follow Schuyler to the fort. Many of the local Mohawk knew Schuyler. According to some stories, they already thought he was protected by the gods, and I guess anyone who could survive as a halfwit in that rough country must have had some divine protection. When they saw his bullet-ridden coat and not a mark on him, this only furthered their view. True to his word, Schuyler told the Mohawk that Arnold, who they called Dark Eagle and already feared as a military leader, said that he was approaching with a large army with as many men as there were trees in the forest. The warriors took him to St. Ledger, where he said that Arnold had a force of about 2,000, or more than double his actual numbers, and that he would be at Fort Stanwix within 24 hours. To follow up, the Oneida scout that had followed Schuyler to the fort also talked to the Mohawk warriors, convincing them that Arnold was focused on the British regulars and militia, and that he would not take vengeance on the Mohawk if they stood down at this time. 
The Mohawk also brought this warrior to St. Ledger, where he not only confirmed Schuyler's story that Arnold would arrive within a day, but that his force was much larger than the 2,000 men Schuyler had said were under Arnold's command. With this news, the Mohawk, who were already unhappy with the siege, insisted that they leave immediately. St. Ledger attempted to get them to stay another day so that he could verify the stories, but the Indians were have none of it. They were going to leave immediately. As they departed, the Mohawk felt that the British promises made to them had fallen short. Some of the warriors turned against their allies. Since the Americans had looted the Indian camps, the warriors looted the British camps, stealing liquor, clothing, and other supplies. Fear of Arnold's approaching army and the attack of their own Mohawk allies led the rest of St. Ledger's army to panic and run away. This was not just a retreat. The army abandoned its tents, most of its supplies, and its field artillery as frightened soldiers fled back to Fort Oswego on the shore of Lake Ontario. As the army fled, drunken Mohawk warriors killed and scalped any of their former allies who fell into their hands. Some of the besieging army, fearing for their lives, ran to Fort Stanwix and surrendered as prisoners. Thus ended the siege of Fort Stanwix on August 22nd. General St. Ledger tried to make the best story out of what happened. He later reported that his army withdrew in the face of 3,000 Continentals sent to break the siege. He said that they would retrace their advance back to Montreal and then move down Lake Champlain to rejoin Burgoyne's army from that direction. Arnold was still more than a day's march away when he received word that St. Ledger's army was fleeing in disarray. He pushed his men to arrive on the evening of August 23rd. Arnold immediately sent out a 500-man force to pursue the fleeing British, but heavy rains slowed the pursuit. Although St. Ledger soon learned that Arnold had nowhere near the number of soldiers that had been reported, there was no way at that point to re-engage, since his native allies were in no mood to go back, and his regulars and militia had abandoned their artillery and supplies. Arnold left about half the garrison at Fort Stanwix. He took the rest, along with his relief column, and rushed back to Fort Edward to join the main northern army in its effort to halt Burgoyne's regulars. But before we get to the next chapter of the Saratoga campaign, next week we're going to return south as General Sullivan attacks the British garrison at Staten Island. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 
to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast after show. Thanks again to Trey Nance for his support of the podcast as a Hamilton Club supporter on Patreon. I also want to thank Tyson France, who runs Liberty & Co. and supports the podcast as a Robert Morris Circle supporter. If you go to Tyson's website, libertyand.co, and once you purchase anything there on the website, all sorts of things having to do with the American Revolution and the founding of this country, you can use the code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, to save 20% on your purchase. This week, we covered the Battle of Oriskany and the end of the Siege of Fort Stanwix. General Herkimer, who I mentioned was wounded in the leg early in the battle, was carried from the field. Unfortunately for Herkimer, his wound proved fatal, mostly thanks to the limitations of medical care at the time. His leg wound became infected. After a week and a half, he had to have his leg amputated. The surgeon who did the amputation did not really know what he was doing, and Herkimer died from blood loss. Herkimer's death made him a local martyr. New York named a town and a county after him. There's a statue, and his home is a historical site. I also mentioned in passing that Nicholas Herkimer's brother was a Loyalist officer. The two brothers, like many families at the time, became estranged over politics. Johann Jost Herkimer spent a couple of years in Patriot jails because of his support for the king. He escaped and fled to Canada in early 1777, where he received a commission as a captain in the Loyalist militia that marched with St. Leger. So Johann Jost and Nicholas were fighting on opposite sides of the battle during the Battle of Oriskany. Unlike his brother, Johann Jost survived the battle and the war. However, the New York legislature declared him a traitor through a bill of attainder, something that the U.S. Constitution would ban many years later. It did not help Herkimer, whose lands in New York were confiscated. His wife, still in New York, wanted to join him in Canada, but Governor Clinton would not allow it. She was effectively held hostage in order to force the British to return some of the wives and children of patriots that they had imprisoned. Eventually, the family did unite in Canada, and Herkimer received a general land grant for his services to the king. If you're interested, there was actually a Hollywood movie that's based on the events surrounding the Battle of Oriskany. It's called Drums Along the Mohawk, and the character of Nicholas Herkimer appears in that 1936 movie, directed by John Ford and starring Henry Fonda and Claudette Colbert. I wish I could say the movie is in the public domain and available for free viewing online. It would be, except for the copyright extension that Congress passed in the 1990s. So, viewing online at YouTube will cost you. Of course, the movie is on TV every few months, so you can probably catch it there as well. I recently recorded it on Turner Classic Movies. 
Also this week, once again, we see Benedict Arnold saving the day. Arnold took on a command that no one else wanted and managed a victory against the odds. Now, I don't usually like to engage in alternative histories or what-ifs, but if St. Ledger had taken Fort Stanwix and then marched on Albany as expected, the American defenders at Saratoga would have faced two armies coming at them from two different directions, and that very likely could have led to a different outcome. So once again, Arnold plays a crucial role in a crucial part of the war in a way that probably no other general would have accomplished. And once again, his services go greatly unappreciated. For more on this very important part of the war, my book recommendation this week is another one that focuses on the events covered in today's episode. It's called Rebellion in the Mohawk Valley the St. Ledger Expedition of 1777, by Gavin Watt. The book is over 400 pages, although a hundred of that is notes and index. Even so, it is a thorough coverage of events involving the Siege of Fort Stanwix and the Battle of Oriskany. This is a 2002 book that went straight to paperback. The author, Gavin Watt, is a Canadian and a longtime reenactor from the King's Royal Regiment so expect a loyalist bias in the book. That said, it is very thorough and well-written in its coverage of events. If you want to read more about the events I talked about today in more detail, check out Rebellion in the Mohawk Valley. My online recommendation this week is another free ebook on archive.org. It's called the Orderly Book of Sir John Johnson During the Oriskany Campaign, 1776-1777. to Now, that may sound really boring, but the title doesn't really do it justice. It's more than just an orderly book, although that is a chunk of the book. Uh, the book itself contains a biography of Sir John Johnson, who was an important part of the campaign and we talked a lot about last week and this week. The book also gives some other mini-biographies of other key players in the battle and a great deal of other information relevant to the Battle of Oriskany. The author, William Leet Stone, or at least the editor of the orderly book part, also authored the ebook that I recommended last year. He is the son of a famous abolitionist newspaper editor of the same name, and he wrote about 20 books, almost all of which involved, at least in part, New York in the American Revolution. If you're hungry for more details on this topic, I recommend doing a search for the author name, William Leet Stone, on archive.org to find his library of works. Or if you just want to find this one book, search for Orderly Book of Sir John Johnson on archive.org. Of course, as always, I have a direct link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty 
to the infamous Reign of Terror. You can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.